Welcome to the Bill Kelly Show podcast. My name's Rick Zamprin. A leaked report about the LRT project in our city shows that bidders were backing away from the project months before it was officially canceled. We'll chat with LRT director Chris Jacobson and Ryan McGreal from Raise the Hammer. And it's that time again, the monthly town hall with Hamilton Police Chief Eric Gert. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We'll begin the day with, uh, well, what we began with yesterday, and it's still the hottest topic in town, the LRT. And apparently, documents from Metrolink, obtained by the Toronto Star, show that it was doomed well before it was scrapped by the Ford government. A document showing that a major construction company, Ellis Dawn, pulled out of the project. Two of the three groups had been shortlisted to bid on the LRT, declined to participate in the process. Why? Well, they were apparently concerned about the lack of provincial and municipal support for the LRT as a primary reason why they weren't taking part. Let's bring in our first guest of the day. He's the LRT project director for the city of Hamilton, Chris Jacobson, and he joins us now. Chris, good morning. Uh, Good morning, Rick. Thanks for joining us today. So, Maybe we'll start with, can you confirm that the information in the Metrolinx document is true? <laughs> well, it, I, I think it's a little bit more nuanced than just, just confirming whether or not it, it, it's true or it's false. So you, know, you, you have to take a look at, at these types of projects. So, so they're big. They're big, they're messy, they're complex. Uh, if you take a look at the, the consortiums, that uh, are put together to actually bid on these projects are made of uh, a number of different firms, multinational firms, uh, multidisciplinary firms, could have you know, anywhere from you know, three to five major partners plus all sorts of, of, of smaller partners that, that, um, that make out these teams. Uh, so to have uh, bidders uh, at various stages throughout the procurement either be more active or less active or uh, have partners that are actually getting swapped out and changed with other partners is not uncommon. So if if you read the information that's contained in that risk assessment that was obtained from from Metrolinks, it may make it seem like oh the the project was was in trouble. Uh, that was never an indication that w- that was given to us by uh, uh, by Metrolinks. And quite frankly, uh, again on these types of of projects. Uh, having partners that uh, are either more engaged or less engaged or going through a process of swapping out partners for new partners is, is quite frankly, very common. So uh, when did you hear or when did you learn that uh, the uh, bidders, those that were forming the groups to bid on the LRT, uh, were concerned about the lack of support government-wise? So I don't necessarily think that we ever heard that directly from Metrolinx, that, uh, that they had those concerns. Uh, I think if we go back to the provincial election, uh, when the, uh, the province uh, implemented a spending freeze, uh, which essentially uh, signaled to, to the bidders that they should put their pens down uh, at that point in time. So that would have been back in uh, July of uh, 2018. Uh, I, I think if you, if you take a look at that and then some of the uncertainty surrounding the municipal election, if you were a bidder, 
uh, on the project, you would probably uh, be a little nervous about whether or not the uh, the project was going forward as well. So uh, even though we didn't necessarily hear that directly from the bidders through through Metrolinks, I, I think it's easy to speculate uh, based on the, the history of the project itself, and especially during that time between the provincial uh, municipal election and then right up until the point, I believe it was February of 2019, March of 2019, when the Minister of Transportation reconfirmed the project, that there would be some easiness. Uh, uh, on the part of the uh, of the bid teams. So residents hearing this story this morning are either thinking that you know the LRT was scrapped because there was a lack of government supports, both provincially and municipally, uh, or it was because of ballooning costs. But which one should be we leaning more heavily towards? So that's probably more a question for the province than it, than it is uh, for us. You know, from, from our perspective and based on the discussions that we were having with uh, with Metrolinks right up until the point uh, in which the project was, was cancelled, uh, we were under the impression that we were uh, full steam ahead. Uh, and even if you look at the uh, the document uh, that was released, you know, it's, it's, it was a risk assessment document and it identified some mitigation strategies that uh, the province was putting in place to, to handle some of these risks, which, which quite frankly, again, are common on, on these big projects. You're always going to have certain risks, uh, but they were developing uh, mitigation strategies right up until, you know, early November. So uh, that suggests to us that uh, in their mind that uh, they were moving forward. We're chatting with Chris Jacobson, LRT Project Director here in the City of Hamilton on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick, in for Bill. A spokesperson for Transportation Minister Caroline Mulrooney says that the previous Liberal government kept the true cost of the LRT hidden. Uh, Caitlin Clark is her name. She tells the Star, quote, while privately knowing the project would clearly uh, would cost nearly $3.7 billion, the Liberals positioned the LRT as a project that could be afforded with a $1 billion provincial capital contribution. Um, so, were the Liberals lying? Are the are the uh, is the Ford government lying? Or is it somewhere in between? What is the true cost? So that's a it's a great question, and I'm I'm not going to speculate on on who's who's telling the proper story when it comes to levels of government. Uh, but what we've seen in in the document that was released uh, the other day was that the Treasury Board approved budget for. Uh, our project or for the LRT in Hamilton was was around 3.7 billion i think that that number was so and that number includes uh, the the cost of construction it includes financing costs it includes operating and maintenance costs for the the 30 year uh, concession period as well as life cycle uh, replacement costs. So that that was the overall number that was ultimately approved by the province. And I believe that, that was in early 2018 uh, for the project. So that was 3.7 billion overall. So I, I know that the, the number that was released by the province late last year came in at at 5.5 billion dollars based on a, an updated cost assessment from October of, of 2019. So if you're comparing numbers, it's, you're really comparing that 5.5 number that they came up with versus the 3.7, which was the Treasury Board approval. So the number, as far as we're concerned, was the, was the number that was approved by Treasury Board. Uh, which was the $3.7 billion uh, back in early 2018. While we're comparing, Mississauga's LRT was once billed as a $1.4 billion project. It was approved at $4.6 billion when all those other costs were factored in. So why is Hamilton being treated differently than Mississauga? I think that's one of the big you know, cracks that a lot of people in this city have. 
So that's that's a great question, and it's a question that that we have as well. Uh, I think here Ontario is probably the perfect example or a perfect comparator uh, to Hamilton. Uh, so there was a funding announcement made similarly right around the time that our funding announcement was made. I believe they their funding announcement was 1.2 or 1.4 billion for the construction costs. Uh, they closed, uh, but the overall cost came in at 4.6. But that again, that was a combination of all four of those buckets of construction, financing, uh, operations and maintenance, and life cycle costing. So, uh, you know, they were approved at at 4.6 billion. I'm not sure what their Treasury Board approval number was because that that number is, is not public uh, uh, to my knowledge. Uh, but when they saw that the market uh, was was driving costs a little bit higher on that project, they had to sit down with uh, the municipalities and worked on a descoping exercise, trying to figure out ways in which to save costs. We weren't given that opportunity, and I think that that's where some of the discrepancy uh, comes between us and what happened on here in Ontario, is they were given an opportunity to try to wrangle in those costs or figure out ways in which we could actually uh, cut some costs to make this work. Uh, we just weren't given that opportunity. Uh, wasn't the original LRT project in Hamilton also including a spur line to the waterfront, or was that separate from the $1 billion investment? So the original announcement was, in fact, for uh, an LRT that was extending from uh, the Queenston Traffic Circle to Eastgate Square, uh, along with a small spur line uh, that would extend down James Street from, uh, I believe it was from uh, King all the way to, to the waterfront, or at least down to uh, West Harbor Go, somewhere, somewhere in that range. So uh, when council ultimately made a decision to uh, approve the project and extend it to, to Eastgate, which was a, the right decision, by the way, uh, the A-line uh, was, was taken out of the project at that point, and those funds were reallocated towards uh, uh, the B-line extension to Eastgate. Right. Uh, the MTO has told us, and this is an email to CHML News, quote, our government will honor our full $1 billion capital commitment to transportation infrastructure investments in the city of Hamilton, end quote. So can we still build an LRT with a billion dollars, or is this project dead? It's a good question. It depends on what we're talking about in terms of LRT. If we're talking the uh, the full LRT from uh, Eastgate to uh, McMaster, uh, yeah, that would be a challenge. I think we'd be looking for uh, some some help, some assistance from other levels of government, in particular the the federal government, to ass- to assist in that regard. But it really depends on what uh, scope of work we're talking about, what form it takes. Uh, but it it would definitely help for sure. So as the LRT director in Hamilton, I mean, it's been quite a, a roller coaster over the last number of months. Are, are, are you angry? Are you disheveled? Share some thoughts. Uh, <laughs> it's been an interesting time, <laughs> to, to say the least. You know, the, these, these, what, what I tell everybody when they ask me that question is, look, these, these projects are complicated. They're big. They're messy. Uh, anytime you, you, you try to to implement a project of this scale and in this magnitude uh, in a quarter that's, that's so aged, uh, that has such history, uh, there's going to be challenges and problems. And this is just another one of those, those challenges and problems that uh, we need to face. It's, it, it's not like you know, the past has been, has been easy for this project either. So uh, I, I think you know, expect the unexpected is, is, is kind of the model for this, uh, uh, for this project. The uh, provincial government setting up a task force now to look at ways to best spend the $1 billion 
uh, on transportation infrastructure in this city. Uh, the MTO telling us that the city of Hamilton is invited to be represented on the task force. My guess is uh, one individual. Would that be you? Would that be the mayor? Do you know? Uh, I, I don't believe that we actually have any indication yet from uh, the province as to who's going to sit on that task force. I, I believe our city manager, uh, Jeanette Smith, has been identified as probably being the most likely person that will sit on that uh, that task force, but uh, I don't believe the composition of the task force has been made public yet or is even known, to be honest. What do you expect to come out of that task force? That's a great question. Uh, you know, I'll go back to my, my, early, my earlier answer, uh, expect the unexpected. Yeah, it sounds like the, that's what we've gotten over the last number of months. <laughs> Chris, uh, <laughs> no, next steps or, or even steps following the task force, how do we get from uh, A to B here? Yeah, it, it, it's a good question, and I'll say that uh, we don't know just yet, so we really need to understand exactly what uh, the task force is going to recommend. We're, we're hoping that, obviously, uh, they're, they're looking at our long-term transit needs. Uh, and we'll identify projects that will help us uh, grow this city and move this city uh, as we do continue to grow. Um, so next steps will, will be developed uh, once we have a clear path towards what projects are we actually going to be investing the, uh, the billion dollars in. Hey, Chris, thanks for the time this morning. Not a problem, Rick. Anytime. Chris Jacobson is LRT Director for the City of Hamilton here, uh, reflecting on uh, the latest news it seems like every day there's something new. Internal documents from Metrolink, since the Provincial Transportation Agency, shows that Hamilton's now-canceled LRT was doomed months before it was officially, quote-unquote, scrapped by the Ford government. Toronto Star obtaining those documents, and uh, it shows that two of the three groups that had been shortlisted to bid on the LRT declined to participate in the process. And... Um, a major construction company, Ellis Don, pulled out altogether. The report says they were concerned about the lack of provincial and municipal support for the line as a primary reason that they weren't taking part. So yes, while costs, according to the provincial government, were ballooning, also these groups, these consortias, if you will, are looking at the situation and thinking... You know what? The province isn't really behind this. There are you know, a lot of rumblings in the city of Hamilton during the election campaign and some councillors not supportive of this project. Why should we bid on this thing? Very interesting developments with the light rail line and maybe officially defunct light rail line. And uh, as we know, this task force is going to be created and uh, preliminary uh, report will be issued at the end of February. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. According to internal documents from Metrolinks, the provincial transit agency said that this project was basically doomed months before it was officially canceled by the provincial government. It says that the groups involved in uh, bidding for the LRT to, to build it, were concerned about the lack of provincial and municipal support for the line as a primary reason that they weren't taking part. Uh, the person who broke the story, Toronto Star reporter Ben Spur, was on uh, CHML last night with uh, On Point with Alex Pearson, 
and uh, said that the cancellation outlines a deeper issue with uh, these kind of big projects. This constant back and forth that we have, uh, this kind of political haggling over projects in the GTA, it can come with a cost. It, it, uh, it uh, can essentially scare off uh, or cause uh, bidders to get cold feet about engaging in this type of project. And apart from the dollars and cents, he says that, uh, you know, political uncertainty does not help. Not completely unusual that bidders would ask for changes to the contract or even even sometimes drop out. But as I say, it just does kind of illustrate some of the difficulties of executing projects like this, particularly in the midst of some uh, political uncertainty. Now, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger uh, has said that it was his understanding that up until the time the project was cancelled by the Ford government, and again, this was officially done on uh, December 16th, that all three bidders were still in play. And uh, we spoke in uh, segment number one today with LRT Director Chris Jacobson, who said that the city had not received any formal communication from the province that two of the three groups in the bidding process had stopped engaging in that process. Let's bring in our next guest. He's the editor of Raise the Hammer. His name is Ryan McGreal, friend of the show, and he joins us on The Bill Kelly Show. Ryan, good morning. Good morning, Rick. How are you doing? Not too bad. Um, Three words. What a mess. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. (laughs) I have to say, for people who are pointing to um, the cold feet that the three consortiums uh, were having about this project, uh, a lot of people who are saying, see, see, this project was doomed from the start, are the very people in positions of political power who have been stalling and undermining and delaying this project for the last 12 years. So it's pretty rich for them to create a climate of political uncertainty and then blame that climate of political uncertainty for the reason why the the consortia became reluctant to keep participating. It's a self-fulfilling and really cynical ploy. There's so many angles to go at this from, uh, including this one. You know, in August of 2018, we all know that the Ford government was, uh, you know, looking at their dollars and cents, implemented a freeze on discretionary expenditures. That paused work on the LRT, a lot of the expropriation work that was going along the line. But um, less than a year later, March 2019, then Transportation Minister Jeff Urich announced that the freeze was over, LRT could go full steam ahead. Then just a few months after that, and following a cabinet shuffle with the provincial uh, PCs, Caroline Mulroney is the new Transportation Minister. She meets with the mayor, Fred Eisenberger, and says basically that the LRT was over budget and uh, it was gonzo. How does the messaging change that quickly? Well, I mean, I, I don't have a crystal ball, and I don't have uh, a way to peer into the internal workings of the Ontario government, but certainly it appears that there's a lot of internal uh, disagreement and dissent over this particular project. Certainly we know that there are MPPs, including the MPP for uh, Flamborough glanbrook who has been opposed to this project for years and is presumably doing everything she can to uh, reduce support for it inside the government. There are also a number of business interests, including Leuna, who are very much in favor of this project. So I think what we're seeing is this has become a football around some of the internal politics in the coalition that the Conservative Party has put together to form this government. Um, the, if you look at the numbers that uh, Minister Mulroney actually provided to the mayor when uh, she met with him at the end of October, he released those as a, uh, as a release by the city. And if you go in and look at the line by line, it's about a six-page document, none of the numbers add up. So they're claiming that the total is $5.5 or $5.6 billion. They don't actually account for those numbers anywhere. If you go in and go through all of the items, it works out to about $3.6, $3.65 billion. And that's not just capital cost. That's all in. That's 30 years 
of capital, financing, uh, long-term financing, operating cost, maintenance, life cycle, the whole package. Now, that is within the original budget that was approved, which is about $3.7 billion by Metrolinx for this project. So uh, what we saw from the leaked documents that came out in the uh, Toronto Star and the Spectator article last night, and uh, we received a copy of the document as well, is that those numbers don't appear to have changed. So Metrolinx's own internal um, budget for this project shows, uh, you know, it's just, it's just an $87 million over budget on professional services. I don't know what that means. But there's no indication that the rest of the project has gone out of scope. Now, the three bidders were going to present, theoretically, their final bids this coming March. But instead, there's been so much political interference that, you know, two of the three of them got cold feet and kind of stepped back. And then the entire project was just cancelled unilaterally in the middle of December. So you're of the belief, and, and I'm of the belief uh, uh, as well, that the the political uncertainty is the bigger hammer as opposed to the increased cost of the project. I think the political uncertainty is the reason for, the, for any increased cost of the project. You know, these companies don't want to get stuck with an albatross. So when they see um, mixed signals coming from the municipality, mixed signals coming from the province, one of the things that the consortia asked for was a kill fee, right, or a break fee. So if the project gets cancelled, they at least get some money. Now, the province apparently agreed to that, and not not long after that, cancelled the project. So how many millions of dollars are we paying to these companies to make them go away? It's it's not, certainly not a good way of being open for business. Uh, and these uh, bidders, um, I mean, there, there, there are a number of different companies forming into a group to bid on a project. So really, you need just one uh, to say, you know what, I'm no longer interested, and that kind of bid falls apart. Potentially, yeah, unless they can find somebody else to step in, you know, who has sort of equivalent credentials to be able to fill that role. Uh, but these consortia have already been approved through the uh, request for qualifications process of the procurement. So before uh, the, this short list of three bidders were invited to actually bid on the project, a number of companies came forward to bid on having an opportunity to build a project, and they have to demonstrate that they actually are capable of following through and completing a project of this size. Ryan McGreal is editor of Raise the Hammer and uh, joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin filling in for Bill today. We've we've seen and we've heard and we've read so many different numbers, $1 billion, $5.5 billion, $3.7, I think I saw $2.9. What is the true cost of this thing? Well, there's one way to find out the true cost. And that is to allow the bid process to complete and see what bids, what final bids these companies bring forward. If you look at the example of uh, here, Ontario LRT, so this is running in Mississauga and into Brampton. Um, they're they're in you know sort of all in 30-year budget was pegged at 4.6 billion dollars. So this past March, the final bids came in and they were a little bit over budget. So the province went back to the bidders and said, okay, we're going to take a few things out. There was supposed to be a uh, roundabout that's going to go around Mississauga City Centre. They took that out, they removed a few stops, and they deferred a pedestrian overpass at one of the sections. That allowed the project to come into the budget, and then they signed off on it and are proceeding. With Hamilton, we were never given that opportunity. And do you think that's a political decision? Absolutely, it's a political decision. There's no, There's already a process in place. If they were concerned that the costs were going to come in over budget, they could have allowed those final bids to come in, and then they could have responded. Uh, you know, Minister uh, Catherine McKenna from the federal government has indicated that the feds would be willing to partner with the province on being able to close any funding shortfall. That opportunity has obviously not been pursued either. 
Do you think that will ultimately be pursued? Is that the, uh, I guess, the ace card in Hamilton's deck, at least, to say, hey, we, we could potentially have another partner? That's certainly what, what we're asking for. So um, Hamilton Light Rail, HamiltonLightRail.ca is a, a, a volunteer group that I'm a part of, and we've been calling on the Premier to step in, fix Minister Mulroney's uh, mistake, and get this project back on track. Uh, the, the decision to cancel it was beyond sloppy. The numbers make no sense. They don't add up. The process was really unprofessional and very non-business-like, but we still believe there's an opportunity to get the parties back to the table and see if we can find a way to make this project work. So you're of the belief that this thing isn't completely dead just yet? No, but one thing I've learned about politics in Hamilton is that it sort of follows CFL rules. You know, with, uh, with the, the shorter field and three downs, uh, a game is never over. Right? You can always change your fortune, even if you've got a few seconds left on the clock. My experience with politics in Hamilton is that it's very similar. These things look like it's a fait accompli, and suddenly it goes into crisis. It looks like it's dead, suddenly it comes back to life. So this was a political decision. Political decisions can be reversed. Uh, there are some still decisions to be made, uh, one of which is the formation of this provincial task force and what's going to come out of it. Uh, what do you make of it? Well, so my problem with this is that you have a provincial task force. I've been told there's going to be five people on this, four of them appointed by the province and one appointed by the city, who are going to, in a matter of a month or two, make a decision about how to spend a billion dollars. That is not how you uh, decide how to make public investment. You know, the LRT project went through years of research and analysis and review. It went to the university to have expert review and feedback. Metrolinks did a benefits case analysis. To do this stuff responsibly, it takes time. So my fear is that it will go to this task force and basically it will just become a way to push off any kind of investment into the distant future. So you're not expecting this task force to say, hey, you know, this billion dollars should be spent on blank? I mean, I hope they come back and say this billion dollars should be spent on the capital cost of the LRT because that was the project that has been studied for the longest, it's been reviewed the most uh, exhaustively, and it provides the biggest overall benefit to the city. If they come back with some wildly different um, conclusion, you know, then we have to look at who was appointed to it and what the terms of reference they were given was. If the feds come on board, and uh, you know, at this point it's a big if, Catherine McKenna has you know, made mention that uh, you know, she's a big supporter of Hamilton, uh, she's from here, represents Ottawa Centre. Um, if the feds are on, bo- on board with whatever the dollar figure is, do you think those, uh, those construction groups, those groups bidding, originally bidding on the project would come back, or would we have to restart this whole thing again? Honestly, I have no idea. I don't know. Uh, sort of, I mean, I mean, I'm not a lawyer, and I haven't read through the details of the contract. We're not even allowed to know how big those break fees are. You know, that's going to be some somewhere in the millions of dollars, but we don't know how much. So it would really, you know, the, the requirement at that point would be for some grown-ups, some responsible, mature leaders to sit down with the feds, with the province, with the city, with the consortia, and figure out, okay, what do we have to do in order to salvage this? Well, it'll be interesting to find out. Ryan, thanks for the time today. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Ryan McGrail is the editor of Raise the Hammer. He's been on the show from time to time talking about um, LRT-related stuff, transportation infrastructure in town, and really has a good pulse on what's happening in this community with the project. Now, the province said it scrapped the LRT because the cost had ballooned from billion dollars to $5.5 billion. I mean, that's what we heard from Transportation Minister Caroline Mulroney. But she had never made mention that the lack of government support was the primary reason for the 
groups that were bidding on the LRT to pull back. We didn't hear that. It was all about the ballooning budget. It was way too much now to build this LRT. There was, there was zero mention of the fact that government supported the lack thereof was a contributing factor. But these internal documents from Metrolinks suggests otherwise. It was the primary reason why these groups said, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. Now, the city says it was blindsided by the cancellation of the project. We heard from Mayor Fred Eisenberger on this show not too long ago after the decision was made. But he met with Mulroney on September 5th and the 26th when she told him that the LRT was over budget. And we know that he reportedly balked at taking or talking about it when he was asked to sign a non-disclosure agreement. As I mentioned, the mayor saying that it was his understanding up to the time the project was canceled, again on December 16th, that all three bidders were still in play. I don't know, there, there's a trust factor here, maybe a non-trust factor. Like, who should we believe? The city's saying one thing, the government's saying another thing, Metrolinx has come in with a new curveball. Yeah, talk about a mess. This is it. This is a dog's breakfast. And I don't think it's that hard to predict that LRT is done. I just can't see it flying. I don't think it's savable. Unless the federal government has a truckload of cash to say, here you go, Hamilton. Build the LRT. I, I just don't see it happening. I think that's the pipe dream uh, thought process that some of us might have. We don't live in a perfect world. If it was a perfect world, that would be it. Oh, you need some money? Here you go. Here's a couple of billion bucks. I'm very intrigued as to what this task force is going to recommend. And I'm not so intrigued to find out who's going to be on the task force because this is a going to be, it's going to be a provincially appointed task force. So we know what the province is going to do. There's going to be a lot of members of this task force that I think are going to be looking beyond the LRT. And with all the ammo that they now have, hey, it's over budget. You know, these construction groups weren't interested because of the political uncertainty. So let's go in a different direction. I mean, the writing's on the wall. But I do wish good luck to those who want to save the LRT. I think it has its economic benefits down the road. Yeah, it's going to disrupt a lot of traffic, cause businesses to go belly up. We saw that on Lock Street. And that was, you know, a year. Uh, email from the MTO. This was in response to a list of questions that CHML website guru Don Mitchell uh, emailed the MTO to say, hey, how about these questions that remain unanswered here in Hamilton? We'd like to know about this task force. How, how are members going to be selected? Because when I was talking to Councillor John Paul Danko, this is a city councillor in Hamilton. He had no idea how this task force was going to be selected. And, and uh, you know, that's not a knock against him. These details have not come out. Well, until we got the email from the MTL yesterday. That says the task force will commence with five unpaid positions. <laughs> Love the fact that, you know, unpaid is in there. 
The task force will include four community representatives from the Hamilton region identified by the Government of Ontario. And the City of Hamilton is invited to be represented on the task force. And from what I can glean by all the other questions that we asked, there's going to be one City of Hamilton representative. And Chris Jacobson, the LRT director, intimating that it's probably going to be City Manager Jeanette Smith, which is, I would say, a good call. Another question, any idea on how the mayor and the city will be involved on this task force? And the answer is, well, Hamilton is invited to be represented. We're committed to working collaboratively with Mayor Eisenberger. The new task force and the city of Hamilton will determine which investments best fit Hamilton's transportation needs. All right. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The next hour, we're going to be joined in studio with uh, or by Hamilton Police Chief Eric Gernt, who uh, is in studio for his monthly town hall meeting. Happy New Year. Welcome uh, to the studio once again. Thank you. Same to you, Rick, and our listeners as well. Happy New Year. So if you have a question for the chief or you have a comment about something that has happened in the city that you want some clarification on, the lines are open at 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. You can send me an email at rick at 900chml.com and we'll read it on air. Or send us a tweet at am900chml or at Rick Samper. A number of things we're going to talk about uh, in the meantime. Uh, we'll get to the cr- recruitment process, uh, investigative services building, uh, some shootings in town, uh, but we'll start with 2019 traffic statistics. Yeah, so uh, the total fatals for this year were 17. They were up two from last year. Generally speaking, we fall in a, the ballpark about 14 to 19 fatalities in a year. And again, when you look at our homicides, uh, these are also deaths. So they're just as significant. So traffic safety being part of public safety is a, is a big issue. Uh, a lot of pedestrian deaths, they were up to nine from five in 2018. And then the circumstances vary, as you know, we have had most of the recent with the fail to remain uh, with the motorcycle and the two pedestrians. Um, so this is serious stuff and it usually uh, relates back to, you know, distracted driving, not paying attention, um, again, we've talked about it so many times on the show, being courteous, uh, giving the other person the benefit of the doubt, all those type of things. And of course, uh, we're also very cognizant of both uh, impaired driving charge, either by alcohol or drug charges. And the drug charges have been up this year, and that's uh, from 61 to uh, from 48. So there's obviously attention both in terms of our training with our uh, field sobriety testing, the training we've done with our members, and of course the hazards of driving impaired by any substance uh, are well known. And, uh, and, those, and those impaired by drug charges um, are up obviously because of, you know, marijuana is now legal in this country? Well, it's it's a broad range. It may not necessarily be just marijuana. Okay. It can be cocaine, methamphetamines, the whole broad spectrum that our drug recognition experts are trained to detect what the actual substance is. And of course, they have to describe it accurately. You know, is it uh, is it uh, uh, a depressant or does it escalate? All those type of things. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I'm not a drug recognition expert, uh, but we know the impact on the driving behavior. But I think there's public awareness about, um, you know, should you be driving if you have been consuming, whatever you've been consuming. And our fundamental message throughout the year, uh, beginning when they looked at legalization of marijuana, is impaired is impaired. 
And of course, I add in other factors like, are you sleep deprived? Have you not eaten? Um, other factors that affect your overall driving behavior. Then add on the drugs, whatever they might be, alcohol or otherwise. And of course, it's all very compounding. As of yesterday, cannabis-infused uh, edibles, beverages are now legal uh, in, in the country. They're now for sale at OCS. You can get them on the website, I think, later on this week. Are we expecting more of these impaired by uh, drug cases uh, in this city, in, in all cities? Uh, not necessarily. And again, that's just strictly marijuana or THC, the, yep. the active content in marijuana. Um, so uh, we're attentive to any of the driving behaviors on whatever the drug that's been consumed. That can be cough syrup for that matter, whatever you've ingested, if you've ingested it to an extreme uh, you know, state that affects your driving behavior. So... Um, in this area, obviously, there's kind of the marketing and merchandising aspect, which is you've explored pretty thoroughly, I think, on this show uh, through a number of, uh, you know, uh, your interviewers. Uh, it, it is complex. It becomes more difficult, in my view, to gauge what you've had or you haven't, particularly if you're ingesting stuff. So let's say you're growing your own plants in your own house, which you can do. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you bake it into baked goods, which you can do. Um, but, you know, you can't sell it. You can't distribute it because, of course, people won't know what the THC content, the government-regulated distribution, of course, clearly indicates what that THC content. And I heard on the show the other day, uh, talking to somebody the marketing, you know, um, because alcohol has been pretty well tested in terms of the scientific literature and the effects on a human being. Uh, but again, and I'm not a chemist, but uh, that alcohol gets absorbed in the water-based tissues, and the largest one being your brain, uh, which is predominantly water. That's why it has the effects it does. For marijuana, it's distributed in fat tissues, and the metabolism is different. So you don't, in my view, and I haven't seen anything in the literature, have these kind of absolutes for if you ingest this, this will affect you. Let's say you're a male who weighs 200 pounds, this will be the effect. Um, even with alcohol, you know, there are differences in terms of people who are overweight versus people who are quite fit, because people who are quite fit have more water-sensitive tissues, people who are overweight have more fat. Um, alcohol is not absorbed into the fat, it's a very different kind of mechanic. Mm. So, um, kind of the touchstone is if you've been ingesting and you think you're impaired, probably best to take an alternate source, just yeah. like we've been talking about for years, if in doubt, uh, the range of cab, the Uber, there's so many other strategies to get to where you need to go. And you say, well, it's cost prohibitive. Well, let's look at the penalties, whether it's for insurance, for the fines in the courts, for a prohibition against driving, for whatever the term is. Those are pretty costly. So uh, I get it at the moment of decision. You're thinking, well, you know, I want to put out 30 bucks or 40 bucks to get where I want to go. You really need to take the broad perspective. And a lot of that has to do with pre-planning. Because when you've been ingesting, of course, your decision-making changes. Your decision-making is impaired, I would say. <laughs> I would say that as well. Um, in in uh, Still in keeping with the uh, traffic stats from last year, you mentioned distracted driving. Yeah. Are, are, are we getting better in that regard? Are we seeing less distracted uh, driving charges? I think I would almost rely on, you know, rely on your shows where you have call-ins about people describing what they see in the car beside them. Uh, because obviously when I'm... You know, our members driving in a marked cruiser, uh, much like behavior in general, tends to change a bit. Not always, but sometimes. And, you know, people put down their phones and all the rest. Um, you know, it's that immediacy of communication. And Klaus Wagner's done a ton of information yeah. on your show and, and publicly. You know, is it really that important? And can you wait? And I mean, I get texts and I leave it in my pocket because I'm going to wait till I stop. You know, it's, it just makes sense because if you're focused on that... And all you need to do, and we had this at driving training at OPC, figure your rate of speed, let's say 50K, and what's the distance you travel in two seconds? 
You know, and you think about that. So for whatever the distance is, and I don't know what it is, let's say it's 125 feet for the sake of argument. That's 125 feet where you haven't been monitoring what's going on. Yeah. And then you, you know, one of the little tests you can do is, okay, I'm going to focus on the changes that happen in front of me, left, right, and forward in that 125 feet. So whether it's a pedestrian entering the roadway, whether it's uh, somebody with a walker who's making that decision to cross or not, you know, if you haven't seen them, now you're, you know, that much further behind the response. So, you know, it's a very active uh, thing driving and, you know, you're driving a vehicle that weighs sometimes a ton or a little less. And what are the damages? And then, mm-hmm. you know, just do the physics of it. Um, you know, force equals mass times acceleration. So yeah. uh, It's not a good outcome. Well, we've seen it, right? We've got nine pedestrians yeah. dead last year. That's pretty significant. Uh, if you have a question for the chief, uh, 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cellular device. You can email rick at 900chml.com or on Twitter at am900chml, at Rick Samprin. If you are driving, hands-free or pull over. There you go. Uh, Frank has called into the program. Frank, you have a question for the chief. Yes, good morning, gentlemen. Um, please, uh, uh, I'd like to know if you could probably provide me with the correct phone number to call the police with. Uh, and of course, this is an avoidance of the people that call 911 sure. automatically, and I haven't seen anywhere where I could, you know, I'm not that I'm going to call you all the time, but if I had to call the police yep. in, instead of 911, what would be that number? Yeah, so I'll say it a couple times, and I really appreciate the, the, the call, Frank, and I do recognize your voice, and I know uh, your interest is in around public safety, and that's well, why you've well, called in you, today. Uh, it is 905-546-4925. Four nine two five, and that's what we call our administrative lines. I'll say it one more time: nine zero five five four six four nine two five. For those life-threatening calls, and we do not inhibit people if their perception is this is a life-threatening situation. And I mean, we saw you know some of the stuff played over the holidays. There, you know, you didn't get your pizza, or you know. Right. Um, uh, Even Amber Alerts, you know, people call you at 9-11. And, yeah, and just for clarity on that, um, they've said, well, they charged the guy because he phoned in complaining about an Amber Alert. That's not the case. There was more content to that. And what the indication was, this caller would continue to call and tie up the 911 lines. Well, mm-hmm. that's where you get into public mischief because this, uh, this particular person's intent. But anytime somebody does that and says to us, well, I don't care what you say, I'm going to continue to tie up the 911 lines. That's a public safety issue because, you know, there are only so many trunked lines when we do have emergent events and we do get numerous calls and we encourage people to phone in. Uh, that's part of the dynamics, uh, you know, how many people are calling in, who can access. That's where, say, a major event is going on. Well, you may have the domestic up in the Stony Creek Mountain or something, and that person needs to get in for the 911 line. So great question, Frank. Uh, our administrative line, 905-546-4925 for non-emergent calls. But you still may require a police response. Thanks for the question, Frank. Have a good one. Thank you, John. Uh, 905-645-3221, star 9900 on yourself. You do have a question for Hamilton Police Chief Eric Gert, who's in studio with us until 11 this morning. Uh, from traffic stats to shootings, this yeah. continues to be an issue here in the city. Well, and what I'll say is, is it's a much broader issue, certainly in Canada, certainly in the Golden Horseshoe. Uh, we have met as a collective in terms of the major police services in the area, and we're looking at uh, a coordinated response to this because it involves drugs quite often. It involves drugs with weapons because, of course, drugs, weapons, money all go together. And then people feel whether they have to protect themselves or establish their turf or whatever. I mean, I just watched over the holidays the Narcos series uh, on uh, Pablo Escobar. And, you know, 
we do not want it getting to that stage in terms of <laughs> yeah. what had happened and where it can go. And I mean, you know, it's a reality. It happened in Colombia. It's mm-hmm. happened in Mexico. Um, when you've got those three major ingredients, uh, this is what we want to curb. So uh, this can involve, it's, it's complex response, it can involve uh, participative programs with youth at risk to uh, make uh, appropriate choices. Um, And by that, I mean, when we look at the risk factors for whether it's uh, getting involved with a gang or drug distribution or criminality in general, terrorism, uh, youth who are being victimized in human trafficking, the fundamental components are all the same in terms of the risk factors. So when you do that preventative piece, it's not just about that one area being either gangs or criminality, it's all those other risk factors. And whether that's an absent person who takes an, uh, and I know that from the research, somebody who takes an active interest in that child's life can be the key component when they've looked at all the programs and all the rest. So where we've got that, whether that's an institutional, uh, let's say, you know, John Howard Society did a ton of work on the gang, anti-gang strategy, and it's all that preventative end. Then you've got the enforcement end, and then you've got the day-to-day. So let's talk about drug enforcement. Even though marijuana was legalized, the vast majority of drug seizures we're doing at the roadside actually involve not so much marijuana, but methamphetamine, cocaine, crack, other drugs. And of course, what do we often get with the drugs? You get the the bundles of cash because somebody is selling. Then you've got uh, the cell phones and you've got uh, the list potentially. Then you've got uh, a variety of drugs sometimes. So we're continuing to do the enforcement in that area. We believe that's very important. So it's, it's preventative. It's enforcement based and then in the broader scheme and the strategy, and I mean, as you know, we shut down all the dispensaries uh, in the city, the illegal dispensaries. Um, I have no doubt that organized crime is behind a portion of it because there's money to be made. Um, but you know, there's so many sheltered companies, all the rest, it's very difficult in terms of investigations. But uh, the, the provincial government gave us the tools to do that, to seize the properties, to require court disposition where the owner or landlord has to enter into an agreement and say, okay, I'm going to post so much of uh, money and I won't be doing this again. Well, we were working through that process. I believe we have seven left. I think it was 28 in total that we seized. Mm. So that's part of the strategy as well. So when people say, well, you should just put a task force out and do this. It's one aspect of it and it's not the solution. It's multifaceted. So working with our partners, working with our community partners around prevention, working at at-risk, with at-risk use, and there's a ton of organizations in the city that are, you know, some of our members donate their time, but we're not directly involved. But, you know, whether we're talking, um, and I won't list them because somebody would be left out, but there's a variety of people doing work in this uh, field who take an active interest in kids. That has such a huge effect. And, you know, you say, well, I didn't notice what the absence was. Well, um, doesn't mean that it's not effective and that it's not helping our kids because, you know, and I've, I've done a lot of work on uh, our strategic approach to youth crime. Uh, when you think about the, and I often pose this to people, think about the kids you know in your life. Not what you're reading in the media. What, who, the kids that you know, what are most of them? They're good kids who are just trying to make their way, sort of relationships, go to school, do all the things that kids have to do in life. Is there a percentage that are at risk? Yeah. But I mean, they may make bad decisions. And then I say, did you ever make a bad decision when you were 12 or 13? <laughs> no. <laughs> well, I haven't had that response from too many people. Yeah. yeah. Because of course, kids at that age are processing with 12 year old mind, not an adult sure. mind. Yeah. That's part of the whole, you know, physiology and the change. Then I say, are there some kids who are very high risk? There are, but it's an extremely small percentage mm. and lots of factors as to why that might be. So working with kids is a big piece 
uh, community involvement is a big piece. Community agencies doing that. It's all part of the whole fabric. And I know Chief Saunders out of Toronto has talked about this as well. It really is a multifaceted. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're continuing our uh, in-studio session with uh, Hamilton Police Chief Eric Gertz, who's with us uh, for his monthly town hall meeting. Uh, we have a number of things that we're going to get to, including uh, the recruitment process for Hamilton Police, investigative services uh, building. Uh, we've been talking about uh, traffic stats and shootings as well. And we were just discussing before the news uh, a proposed, I guess, uh, maybe it's a pie in the sky, handgun ban uh, uh, for some cities. Or, or, or parts of this country. Um, and in regards to shootings, I mean, this is something that is just not, you know, a Hamilton issue or a Toronto issue. There's really no borders here. So you need multi-jurisdictional forces to collaborate, but you need other collaborators as well. Agreed. Yeah, and whether that's CBSA at the border in terms of searches and, you know, with the volume of traffic, particularly in uh, southern Ontario, uh, with our adjunct to the USA, you know, can they inspect every vehicle? Um, the methods which which uh, gun smugglers go to to get them across, um, all those type of things. Um, and sometimes it involves statutory changes in the states because uh, you have, um, and we've tracked it through our uh, tracking program in terms of where those uh, crime guns come from. Uh, even, you know, and this is not a, a slam against lawful gun owners, uh, but we do know, you know, uh, lawful gun owners are sometimes targeted. People are uh, very motivated to get those guns. They can be properly locked up and secured and all the rest of that. Um, so there are stolen guns, there are guns from the states, uh, there are other guns uh, through antiquity. And, you know, we have a whole gun amnesty program that is not time specific. It can happen at any time. So if you're in possession of firearms that you've acquired either through inheritance or, you know, Uncle Past or whatever, give us a call. Don't bring them in. Give us a call. We'll come out and take them. And we do, in fact, check them for any crime-related stuff. But if you've provided them to us, you know, obviously you're not going to be prosecuted for possession of a, red, a restricted handgun or prohibited handgun. I mean, I, I remember a place that we did a, a seizure on. It was hundreds of weapons, including kind of like the movies with a Tommy gun and a 50 caliber, which is military ordinance. I don't hmm. know if anybody's seen a 50 caliber weapon. These are very heavy-duty rounds. So... From a public safety aspect, we always have the gun animacy going on. We do have lawful gun owners who do use them responsibly. And then you've got a segment of the population who are going to acquire them. Uh, we had a spate there a couple of years back where people were converting over uh, flare guns uh, to fire a single 22 caliber round, which can be done. You look it up online and we're not, you know, advocating that because once you, you know, once it's a firearm, it's a firearm. Right. It's no longer a, a flare gun and you've made it a uh, a handgun and you know you'd be prosecuted appropriately so lots of strategies again uh, to work on this issue but uh, the multi-sectoral component whether it's us cbsa our counterparts um, can be homeland security can be a whole range of uh, investigative bodies that turn their attention to this i uh, got a tweet from a listener by the name of mike he asks with the seeming rise in gun violence in hamilton can you please comment on the impact of the closure of the hamilton forensic pathology unit on hamilton police investigations thanks yeah, and I wouldn't see a direct correlation there with regard to the number of shootings we're having. Uh, the issue is largely uh, for the coroner to determine, uh, as Chief Coroner is uh, Dirk Hoyer. Uh, we continue to meet with them, and we will meet with them, to look at um, how can we expedite certain processes, maintain the integrity. I'm not going to venture into the whole um, uh, you know, union issues that they have internally. That's not our battle. Uh, are we looking for a unit that will do proper investigations, give us the proper information? 
Yes. Will they make decisions around the provision of services or not? Yes. Uh, at least in this jurisdiction, and I mean our counterparts uh, in Waterloo, for example, they just said, no, we're not doing them anymore. Um, that has not happened there. So there's still uh, opportunity for dialogue. I know that the pathologists and the coroners are continuing to meet, and there's a whole you know, investigative piece going on. Um, but from our perspective, we want to ensure that we have the proper investigations, proper information, sharing of information. Could that include something like a video suite? If you've read the Thunder Bait report, for example, part of the criticism in that review through the OIPRD was around investigators speaking to pathologists directly. And because they had to travel, you know, in this, qua- this case, it's a question of very rural setting where the actual uh, postmortem is being done. You still don't want that interface between the investigator, our investigator, and the pathologist to say, uh, what is going on here? What are the circumstances? Because, uh, and I mean, people watch the shows on TV. Not everything is, you know, 100% clear at the outset. So whether that requires toxicology, whether it requires further examination, uh, whether it requires consultation between pathologists to come to a conclusion on what the cause of death was or was not, um, these are complex issues. So uh, if it's going to, at the end of the day, create uh, an inhibition to doing that work, then I'm opposed. If I have an opportunity through modernization or otherwise to increase the communication, still meet the objective that's more efficient, I'm in support of that. Um, Again, we're not the decision makers or the controllers of the coroner. That's the chief coroner. So there's that debate going on. I'm certainly interested from police perspective not to lengthen our process or have gaps in communication. So I think we need to be uh, progressive in terms of are there opportunities to make it better? Are there better systems that we can do? Usually when you're in these change processes, are that terms of the staffing issues there, I believe that's a debate between the coroner, the pathologists, and that's going on. If you have a question for Hamilton Police Chief Eric Gertz, you can call the studio at 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. You can email rick at 900chml.com or on Twitter at am900chml at Rick Samprin. Investigative Services Building, what is the latest greatest on this facility? Uh, so we're looking at completion in the first quarter. Of course, we've got to move in furniture and all those type of things. This has been a major advancement, particularly uh, for our forensics unit, but of course it is the whole Investigative Services building. So that's better service to victims of crime uh, being or survivors as we call them now, whether it's sexual assault or domestic violence. We'll have a dedicated building that is um, responsive to their needs, um, how they come into the building, how they're handled. That's just one aspect. Uh, You then have the centralization of uh, areas that work on this collaboratively, uh, but certainly from a lab perspective, and we've been pretty vocal about this for a number of years, we're moving from uh, really 1970s based lab setup to one that is current in terms of best practices, um, isolation of victim, uh, accused person, the scene, and then a fourth lab, uh, the continuity, the handling of exhibits. Um, it really is a major step forward and we're, we're quite thankful that uh, this has moved in that direction. And when you look at the HVAC requirements specifically, um, it's, it's quite involved quite detailed, and of course, you don't want cross-contamination. So we've gone to extensive steps to ensure that hasn't happened through our forensic officers, Um, but this will give us a a very much needed uh, boost in that area. And of course, uh, it's all subject to the court process, so our whole chain of continuity is questioned every time we get in court. 
want to ensure we're doing the best uh, best work that we can. What are going to be the main benefits from this building? I think exactly that in terms of processing of forensic exhibits. Right. And as you know, uh, one of the major growth areas now is around digital evidence. So whether that's videos, cell phones, cameras, whatever has gone on, uh, it's the handling and processing of that. And of course, I, I've called it the digital tsunami because, you know, it's everywhere now. It's ubiquitous. And the stuff just keeps coming in. It's helped us in terms of the crime solving because, as you know, whether it's shootings or otherwise, and, you know, whether it's even, uh, you know, the homicide of Chichi Lupino, we had video of the shooter. So, I mean, that's a major step forward where you at least have a photo. And I realize it's a person of interest because it doesn't clearly establish that he did the shooting. Uh, but now you've got a starting point. And in many of our investigations, whether it's cars involved, people involved, how many people, uh, that video evidence is so pivotal to sorting stuff out. So that's a major component within the investigative services as well. It's the growth of technology. And then you've got software that's involved. You've got mapping of crime scenes that's involved. And even, um, you know, our collision reconstruction. Uh, you've got to start doing digital analysis on that part too. So that's a major advance. Certainly the handling of forensic exhibits, the establishment and housing for people. We were at a space deficit. I know it's hard to believe. Um, we're just meeting that deficit in terms of what the standards are in police buildings, having the addition of the investigative services building. So these were a long time coming and we know that it's competitive in terms of all the needs of people across the city. But when you're looking at homicide investigations, you know, when we talk about the Bosma homicide, uh, you know, we had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of exhibits. We had help from our OPP counterparts, Waterloo, York, on and on it goes. And then our people did it as well. So that was a collaborative effort. Uh, but what people don't realize is many of the exhibits, particularly in homicides, you have to retain indefinitely. Uh, you mentioned Lupino. Um, there was a number of mob-related shootings, quote-unquote, uh, in 2019. Uh, Musitano, Ivoroni. Um, are we seeing movement in that area? Do we expect the same level of activity in 2020? Well, I don't. I can't be predictive about what it's going, but obviously you're having a, a resettling, and it's not just, uh, they call it traditional organized crime. There's many other aspects of crime or organized crime that are vying for, um, and again, it's about money. Yeah. It's usually about drugs. It uh, can be human trafficking, and it can be a whole realm of things, but there's money to be made. So, uh, I mean, I don't want to, you know, <laughs> use cultural references all the time, but, you know, just look at the, the common... Um, movies that are out there, it kind of shows you the dynamics of what the people are about and what their motivations mm -hmm. are. I mean, the hazards, I'll call it, is, um, it's an old standing thing, there's no honor among thieves, and certainly, um, and having just read the, or watched the Narco series, um, it's just a matter of time before uh, you've said the wrong thing or done the wrong right. thing or suspected of the wrong thing and then uh, meet tragic ends. So, you, know, you may acquire wealth. Is it permanent? Uh, is somebody else looking to acquire it? Definitely. Yeah. So uh, we're seeing that kind of sort out, not just here, uh, but in the Golden Horseshoe and elsewhere. And of course, there's ties to Buffalo and on and on. It goes to Italy uh, for that aspect of organized crime. But there's many aspects sure. of organized crime. Uh, we got a caller on the line. His name is Mike. Uh, Mike, go ahead with your question for Hamilton Police Chief Eric Kurt. Hi. Uh, I know you, you guys are talking. I'm not sure if Hamilton's talking about the handgun ban, um, but I'm just curious as to how many legitimate handguns are actually used in crime compared to non-legitimate? Because not including or, uh, suicide. I know that 75% of all gun deaths in the country are actually suicide. So what percentage of the, the other 25% is, is illegal guns used? Because it wouldn't make sense to ban handguns if it's all illegal handguns are being used. 
Yeah, good, good question, Mike. Yeah, great question. And, and obviously, you're up in your statistics. Uh, I don't have the statistics right in, in front of me. But what I would say, it's a small percentage uh, in terms of involved in criminality. And again, you know, if it's been stolen in the first place and then is uh, trafficked after that, um, then it becomes an illegal firearm. It's not that it was originally. It's just uh, post-stolen it is. So uh, to your point, and you raise a good one, in terms of what uh, the method of death is that people pick to uh, complete the act of suicide, um, you know, that's a concern as well. But then, of course, there's checks and balances for who has them, how it's acquired, has their state changed, uh, you know, there's uh, practitioners, whether it's psychiatrists or otherwise, who have to let us know through the chief firearms officer and, you know, we'll take the appropriate steps to reacquire. And we've done that, uh, whether it's handguns or long guns, all the rest of that stuff. So. Uh, short answer to your question, small percentage, but I don't have the exact figure. Uh, recruitment process changing for Hamilton Police. So what is changing? Uh, what has changed is the ministry, being the Sol Gen now, the Solicitor General, has uh, opted out of the constable selection system. And uh, that had to do with what the requirements are, uh, what's involved. We're actually undergoing, for all our services, not just ours, uh, uh, flux here in terms of uh, uh, there was a certificate that was previously required, no longer required. That was the ATS certificate. Um, they're the company that provided that. Um, but uh, there's change there. The OACP has taken a position on uh, doing a start. Different services and have, through the course of time, adopted different practices for hiring. What we're trying to do as an organization, through, certainly through the OACP, who now has carriage of that, is look at consistency across the province. Because the goal is, do we get the right candidates for the right job in a timely response? There were some issues with the previous process around uh, people may have um, been eliminated unnecessarily or the tests were uh, not conducive to either diverse candidates or females or otherwise. Uh, they've done the analytics on that. Uh, there is no perfect system for any hiring, I would say. And certainly with um, the trust that's embedded with the oath of office as a police officer, we take that quite seriously. Uh, used to be a six to eight month process. We're trying to look at ways to expedite that. We understand that people don't want to dedicate that amount of time, and but we also want to get the right candidate. So it's not just us, it's all the services looking at how can we better do it. You know, and as a career, um, we continue to promote that. And we, you know, we've said a lot of times, but certainly for the demographic we're looking at, um, people in that demographic, 20s to 30s, will look at many career changes through the course of their lives. What we're saying as policing is you can do that within the career of policing. So whether you started, and most of us start in patrol, and that's a variety of calls. You can then go to child abuse, you could go to canine, you could go to emergency response unit, mounted patrol. I mean, it goes on and on and on, the possibilities. And that's one of the beauty, uh, or one of the great aspects of this job that I always found is, and I mean, you could say you can't hold the job within the job, but uh, it's that variety. And then what you see through the course of time where you've worked in a variety of units, how it all intermeshes, how, how it all works together, why this little piece of information is pivotal over here, or why this intervention for prevention is so important, where it may not be enforcement-based, and understanding the broader context of policing. So I think it's a great job in terms of both challenge, opportunity, learning, uh, continued development. Um, so we continue to advocate for this job. I mean, most of our people who retire say, uh, you know, they may have had one or two bad days, which isn't bad when you think about the general population, how you might feel about your job. Mm -hmm. But generally speaking, they enjoyed coming to work and they enjoyed what they've done and contributed and intervened in many people's lives. And do you have the perfect solution? None of us do. Uh, but are you 
actively trying to help people? Are you actively trying to make things better? Um, it's a very rewarding career. So we're just changing in terms of the uh, dynamics, but we're trying to streamline and we're certainly open for business. This is a great time uh, to be applying to the job of policing, uh, particularly in Hamilton, as that's where we work here. Mm-hmm. And this is a vibrant city, and I think there's lots of opportunities to make contributions to your community. we got uh, just about a minute or so. What attributes does a person need to be an effective police officer? Um, I said, actually, when I've been talking about recruiting, there's kind of two things. And this may seem self-evident, but it's not always. Uh, you have to like people. Uh, some people don't like people, <laughs> yeah. um, and that's okay if you realize that. But uh, you're going to be dealing with people, and you're going to be dealing with people in states of crisis and in, in great need, and you have to be empathetic and responsive, compassionate. That's a big piece. When we hear about the good news, they said, this officer did a great job, can be anything from a death notification to a child abuse investigation to a ticket, whatever. The public has told me, through their comments, compassion, professionalism, and respect. Mm. So if you embrace that, and then what I call it is problem managing as well as problem solving, because quite often, you you know, you have very complex problems. We've talked about it. Do you enjoy working on problem solving and problem managing? So if you've got those two aspects as core competencies, you act ethically, you're trying to help people. Those to me are the three key components to get involved in this job. Do we need a lot more officers in town? Uh, with the demographics, with the retirements at the tail end of the baby boomers, mm-hmm. yes. Uh, with the transition, and as you know, I went to the board last year, we got 25 additional officers due to workload. Yes, uh, there are great opportunities right now, just from timing of uh, both retirements and our operational needs. And again, one career, endless opportunities. We'll have to leave it there. Uh, we'll catch up with you uh, a month from now, but thanks for coming in and Happy New Year. Thanks very much, Rick. You too. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.